So playing it safe might actually be the riskiest thing you can do. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. We're talking with Randy Gage, author of a book called Risky is the New Safe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is your host, John Jance. My guest today is Randy Gage. He is a success coach, speaker, author of eight books and dozens of audio and video resources on success, including what we're going to talk about today, the New York Times bestselling, Risky is the New Safe, The Rules Have Changed. So, Randy, thanks for joining me. Great to be on with you, John. And that's actually Risky is book number nine, number I'm nine. happy to say. All right. <laughs> so, so eight books plus one, and then we'll call it today. So... Uh, I, I guess anytime somebody starts talking about safe and risk and, and in fact, pretty much anything you put in the title, I, I like to get a baseline maybe. D- define, define what risk is. Well, it changes, and it's, it's been changing, and it's changing more. And there's calculated risks, and there's intelligent risk, and there's stupid risks. And... You know, when I grew up, my mom said, go to school, get an education, get a job with a big company. You're going to be set for life. And that was the best she knew at the time. And she wasn't alone. I think millions of mothers and fathers told their kids the same thing. Today, that's probably the riskiest thing you could do in terms of your financial security, right? So it used to be safe, but now it's risky. And that's really the premise of the book is how because of things like technology, the accelerated speed with which technology is developing, political factors, just human development, mind viruses, memes, things like that, the rules have changed completely. So the definition of risk has changed to the point where what used to be safe is now risky and what used to be risky is now safe. Yeah, and I think that there's there's you're contributing to a body of work. I think of of a lot of people that are starting to beat this drum. Uh, I um I started my own business 25 years ago, and I, I remember at that you know at the time I say this all the time. My friends would say, "Well, you know, maybe something will come around." Um, you know, kind of implying that that doing your own thing at that, at that point was you know was was sort of code for you can't get a job. Um, and, and of course now, as we know, you know, it's, it's the, it's, as you talk about, it's the safe, it, it is the safe thing to do, but it's also, I think the desirable thing to do for a lot of folks. Yeah. I got to tell you for years, I'd call my mother every week. And at some point near the end of the call, she would say, have you given any thought to getting a real job? <laughs> Cause that's just, you know, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and that's what security is. You had a job and they gave you a paycheck every Friday. And if you didn't have a job with a paycheck every Friday, that was like, wow, crazy. Yeah, and I, I grew up in, in, in a little different environment, actually. My uh, father was, uh, for all intent and purposes, a self-employed, you know, independent manufacturer's rep. And I, I kind of I saw what I thought, even though, you know, obviously there were times when they struggled to make, make ends meet. Um, I, I saw the side of, of a lifestyle that, to me, was very appealing growing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great you were exposed to that. Yeah. So uh, you have a story in the book about, uh, and I'm sure you were working on this anyway, but that sort of cemented this idea of risky is the new safe. You talk about observing some monkeys doing something. You want to you tell that story? <laughs> yeah, go to Phuket, Thailand, 
one of my bucket list things. I wanted to ride an elephant in the rainforest. Um, so I go to this echo preserve to ride the elephant, and I got my mastermind group with me, and there's a lot of us, and they don't have enough elephants, so they say, you want to go watch the monkey training show. Monkey training? Or, you know, all right, I'm up for that. And they're harvesting monkeys. I mean, they're training monkeys to harvest coconuts in place of human laborers. And that really clicked with me on a couple of levels because I looked at that and, I, you know, we've had animals as beasts of burden for centuries, right? Horses and mules pulling plows and things. But this was really cognitive labor. This was, and this is directly replacing humans who have been doing this work for decades. And I'm just looking at that training and I'm saying, Man, I hope nobody from American Airlines ever sees some fights out about this. Because <laughs> you just know if they did, there's somebody in Dallas going to say, hmm, could we replace a couple of flight attendants on every 777 with monkeys to, you know, throw bags of peanuts to people and hand them a can of Coke? Um, and, of course, it was that same trip coming home where I met that cloned puppy. And that was not just a catalyst for the book, but a, a seminal moment in my life because that puppy licked my face. And I'll tell you why that's important, right? Because, of course, and you know the story, I'm just in an airline lounge. I see this couple with this carrier with a little puppy. I love animals, so I want to play. And that's when she tells me this puppy's a clone. And I don't believe it. I mean, crazy, right? But it really was. It wasn't the first cloned puppy. It's just the first cloned puppy that had come back to the States. And when that puppy licked my face, and it was just the most adorable, playful, frolicking puppy like you would rescue from any animal shelter, and you realize that puppy's a clone, then the whole world changes. Because, you know, I'm a sci-fi geek, so, you know, Star Wars, Star Trek, Clone Army, hey, yeah, that's all cool. But that's sci-fi. And like I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I had heard they cloned camel and cloned a sheep in Dubai. But that's abstract. That's like test tube something somewhere in a lab. When the puppy licks your face, now it's real. And then it's well, how long before they clone humans? And what happens when we clone humans? And if you've got 12 identical cloned brothers, what's that conversation at the Thanksgiving table, right? <laughs> um, if Jones and Sons Hardware can just clone more sons, why would they ever hire anyone? Well, as I said in the book, the person who you know, perfects, uh, you know, virtue, you know, when we start cloning sex workers, that's going to be one of the wealthiest persons on earth, whoever does that, until virtual reality sex is, per is perfected, and that person will become the richest human being on earth. And, of course, the book is about all these cataclysmic changes which are coming up, and not I'm talking 50 years, 100 years, I mean in the next decade, and the, the tremendous challenges they're going to face, because, I mean, when you talk about cloning, when you talk about this stuff, this is going to strain the very fabric of our society, marriages, relationships, families, business, marketing, everything is 
all the rules are thrown out the window because now everything has changed. And but the you know the amazing thing is those are going to create the greatest uh, opportunities, and that's where wealth is created is entrepreneurs who solve problems. And there's going to be more problems in the next ten years than there's been in the last thousand, and that makes this the most exciting time ever to be an entrepreneur. Well, well, and I've heard, and I've heard, you know, I, first off, I totally agree with you. Um, that you know, the the I I almost laugh when people talk about recessions and and you know some of the things that you know that that are in sort of this fear mindset. But how do you how do you Here's where I think people have a, a challenge is they hear people talk about things like cloning and they hear people talking about, uh, I heard somebody talking the other day about mining asteroids in space for, you know, for, for gold and things. And that was my book. That's where you heard that. <laughs> well, actually, actually, Ray Kurzweil um, yeah, was the first person that introduced me to that idea. Um, and, and I think there's going to be an, an X prize uh, um, <laughs> for, for trying to solve that problem and, and a number of problems. But um, well, and the Google boys have already formed a company with uh, uh, Cameron, yes. and they've got it set up, yeah. and they're already moving forward. Well, well so the, but that's what—that's the point I was getting. I mean, you think you talk about the Google guys, and you talk about people that that are going to get into and already are into cloning. But how does the kind of the average, if if that's probably a terrible term, but just uh, since I think a lot of my uh, listeners would consider themselves the average entrepreneur considering an idea, you know, how they ha- wrap their head even around something that. That not only seems abstract, but uh, but obviously takes you know, you know, a few billion dollars to even get started. I mean, what, where where are the opportunities on the street, maybe, to tap into what you're talking about? Well, here's the most important thing: there has never been a better time to create wealth. Never been a better time to launch a company. Never been a better time to go after one of these challenges because technology has made so many of them reachable. That it doesn't take billions of dollars because there's so, you know, if, if I look, you know, I have a YouTube channel. I make a show every Monday. I'm doing it on a, a $200 flip cam. If I was doing the same show and wanted to get the same results with a camera 10 years ago, I would have needed a $75,000 camera. Yep. And it still wouldn't have been high definition, which is what my little $200 flip cam is now. And you can see that in sector after sector after sector. So uh, the money is not even an issue because nobody has a money problem. Nobody has a money shortage. If you have the right idea, you'll always attract the money. So my mantra is, you know, nobody has a money shortage. They only have an idea shortage. You find the right idea, the money will take care of itself. Um, So that's the base, the first thing. And then the other thing to think is just in whatever field you're in, you just, Ask the right questions. You know, it's like people say, do you really believe I'm going to be able to vacation on the moon in my lifetime? And I say, well, that's the wrong question. Better question would be, who owns the moon? Right? I mean, think about it. I mean, who owns the moon? I mean, (laughs) America went there. We left a little Land Rover up there, put a flag. Does that mean we own it? If China goes there in two years, they knock down our flag. Does that mean they own it? How do we colonize the moon without all these territorial wars like we did on this planet? Well, whoever can answer that question is going to get really rich. Someone asked the question, well, what does reduced gravity do to appetite? What does reduced gravity do to muscle strength? What does reduced gravity do to hair growth? 
What does reduced gravity do to libido? What does reduced gravity do to fill in the blank with 100,000 other questions? And those are much better questions. Same thing. Some people read my book and say, well, do you really believe I'm going to be able to buy a home on the floor of the ocean in my lifetime? Wrong question. Better question would be, what is the price of ocean floor real estate going to do to the price of oceanfront real estate? Now we have a much better question because that question will take us to the opportunities. So whether they, anybody listening, whether they've got a dry cleaner, whether they've got a restaurant, whether they're an uh, app developer, wh- whatever they are, you just you look at your market and say, well, what are the three things that keep my market awake at night? What are the three problems that they're just vexing about, that, that they, they, you know, they really need help with? Because that's where the opportunities are. And then you can look, how does that, what's going to happen in the cloud? What's going to happen with mobile apps? What's going to happen with broadband speed? What's going to happen with streaming video? What's going to happen in politics? You know, the, the, what I'm talking about in, in this book is something that uh, I learned from uh, Dan Burris, who's a futurist and has a great book called Flash Foresight. Um, and the other book, by the way, everyone should read is the guy you mentioned, Ray Kurzweil, which I didn't even discover until after I wrote Risky. But I'm, I'm really fascinated with, as I'm writing the sequel, which is, I think it's called The Spiritual Age of Machines, where he's looking at artificial intelligence yeah. and what's happening in that arena. Um, so you look at those kind of things and then say, okay, well, how will that plan? And if, because if, then, you know, you just say, well, if that happens, what then? And, and what Dan Burris does in his book is he talks about the difference between hard trends and soft trends, linear trends versus cyclical trends. And so, once you understand that concept, like the price of real estate, that's cyclical. It goes up, it goes down. If we look at the, the speed of broadband, that's linear. It's only going to get faster. If we look at the, the cost of, of broadband, that's linear. It's only going to get cheaper until some point it's too cheap to meter, right? Like water or air. So if you look at you know it's a hard trend and it's a linear trend, you really can predict the future with an amazing degree of accuracy. And once you know what the future has coming, now you know what the problems are going to be. And that puts you ninety, you know, ahead of 90% of the world because now you know here's the three things that's going to be really keeping everybody in my space awake at night. And if you can offer a solution to one, two, or all three of those things, you're going to be one of the wealthiest people in your space. Do, do you think, uh, I know you love controversial um, opinions or sharing controversial opinions because <laughs> I, I, I've heard, uh, I've heard uh, some of those. Uh, do you think that our current education system, at least in the United States, is, is actually a problem for this kind of thinking? It's, the education system in the United States is absolutely archaic, absolutely broken down, and absolutely a problem for this kind of thinking because it's not graduating critical thinkers. And I'm talking about from pre-K to kindergarten to grade school to high school to graduate degrees. It's teaching people what to think instead of teaching them how to think. Uh, It's based on memorizing facts, which any eight-year-old with a smartphone, and yes, every eight-year-old has a smartphone, could look up. 
Well, I think if I look I, even I, at the you know the college model. What's it built on? It's built on these sprawling brick and mortar campuses exploiting student athletes, an outrageous amount of student debt. And I say we're 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 really really close to the point where a sixth or nine month certification in something from something might be a university, might not will be much more lucrative, much more valuable, much more useful to someone than an MBA program or even a PhD program. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, transitioning then right into the traditional job market, I mean, I think that uh, a lot of our education system was built on the idea of creating factory workers or information workers, I guess is what they later became. But uh, and, and I think if you change that, uh, obviously doesn't, I mean, doesn't that mean we have to change the education system? We have to change the education system. And more directly, I, I think people have to take personal responsibility for their learning. Because the education system is designed, I would be even a little more dramatic than what you say. I would say the education system is designed to create worker drones for the collective. You know, for Star Trek fans who remember the Borg I mean, that's really what our education system is. It's churning out this factory of worker drones for the collective. And there's people can't think for themselves because how to think is actually a skill set that needs to be developed. And, you know, the people who are listening to this, I don't think that's an issue because entrepreneurs, that's what makes us entrepreneurs. We are critical thinkers. Everyone else looks at it and says, well, here's ten reasons why that won't work. An entrepreneur looks at a situation and says, how could I make that work? And that's the biggest difference in the world. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and maybe not even how could I make that work, but how could I make that work in a way that's completely different than everybody else is thinking about it? Yeah, and, and, and just the, the thing we say, you know, entrepreneurs say, okay, I get that that can't happen or that's not possible, but if it was possible, <laughs> how could it be possible? And that's a better question. Does that um, so, some of the most sort of idea-driven, risk-taking, you know, critical thinkers out there, and you you profile a great number of them, you know, starting with say Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, you know, some some household names. Um, but what what role does and and you talk about this, and I and I think this can be a challenge for some folks too. Uh, you talk about the role of ego being a very positive thing, and and and. You know, where a lot of people think of it as a ne- as a negative, uh, but but possessing and and having you know being very ego driven as being a very positive thing. Yeah, what I'm doing in that chapter of the book is looking at the process, which I think high high level achievers, um, like you know, it started with a magic key to riches, Napoleon Hill. Um, he's got a list in there. It's like a laundry list, this many pounds of oxygen, this much nitrogen, whatever that you could buy for five bucks. And of course the joke is at the end that these are the ingredients for the human body. And I think today you could still buy them all for 20 bucks or less. And so I say, well, what separates us between that list of ingredients? And the answer is the ego because the ego is what makes us conscious of consciousness. And then you go to his other work, Think and Grow Rich. So here he spent 20 years studying, learning at the feet of the most successful people in the world. Ford, Firestone, Wanamaker, Edison, Carnegie, right? 
none of those people had a small ego, right? So fast forward to today, the people I'm talking about in the Risky book, Mark Cuban, Richard Branson, Zuckerberg, Oprah, Meg Whitman. I mean, nobody's going to accuse any of these people of having a small ego. So what the high, high level achievers do, and this is true in entrepreneurial instincts. It's true in sports, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, whoever. It's true in the arts, uh, Pavarotti and, uh, you know, the people like Prince or people like this. They channel their ego toward uh, an objective. They harness their ego. They channel it. So bottom line is it's you, your, your ego controls you or you control your ego. And what the people we're talking about do is they control their ego and they actually channel it toward a greater goal. Yeah, so it's it's not I have this giant ego and it's all about me. It's all about me getting this audacious thing done. Yeah, because I'm sure there's people listening saying, well, wait a minute, I know a guy with a big ego and he's just a jerk. Right. That's not what I'm talking about. Somebody who's telling you how good they are all the time or why they're better than you. That's not a, a, a healthy ego. It's just the opposite. You know, narcissism comes from insecurity. So the people who are comfortable in their own skin, they don't have to put you down. But the, the real point that I'm getting across in this chapter of the book is the desire to be great and to be recognized for greatness is not a bad thing. It's a wonderful thing. Awesome. So let's end with one uh, one last category uh, um, uh, or topic, I should say. The, the new religion of ideas. You write about uh, how our job now, I think, is to become more of a designer or an idea generator. You want to talk a little bit about that notion? Yeah, because that's building on what the, the questions you raised about the education system. Because in this new space, um, ideas will be the most sought-after currency in the world. And because the education system is so uh, horrible at, at fostering this and nurturing this, people have to take responsibility for their own learning. And they've got to learn to become critical thinkers. They've got to learn to be lateral thinkers. They have to learn to be logical thinkers. They have to practice um, creative thinking. So whether it's doing Sudoku puzzles and word puzzles and crossword games and logic things and Menza quizzes and things like that, we, we have to nurture and develop those alternative styles of thinking. And, you know, there's, there's actual science that shows, that, like the average human, they have like 60,000 thoughts a day. That's the good news. Bad news is 45 or 50,000 of them are the same thoughts every single day. Huh. I've got to brush my teeth. I've got to take the cap off the toothpaste. And science has actually shown that that same thought which you have every day actually goes through the same neuropathways in the brain. And it creates a rut in your brain. Day after day after day after day, you have that same thought. It literally creates a rut in your brain. So what you're doing with these collateral thinking and, and Sudoku puzzles and crosswords and word jumbler games and all of this other stuff where you get what the scientists would call whole brain synchronicity, you want the left side and the right side to actually get some communication going back and forth, and that really fosters critical thinking. It fosters possibility thinking. 
it fosters the ability to generate ideas. And that's what entrepreneurialism is all about. I mean, that's how wealth is created. How do we create wealth? We, we solve problems and we serve needs, you know, make needs. We reduce costs. We solve problems in some way. And those come from ideas. Absolutely. So talking to Randy Gage, author of Risky is the New Safe. And uh, I know people can find a tremendous, uh, obviously your books can be uh, purchased anywhere, but uh, you've also got some uh, pretty great stuff at uh, randygage.com. You, you want to talk about anything or a any other resources that uh, people might want to take a look at? Yeah, I actually have a site set up for the book at riskyisthenewsafe.com. I've got a couple one-hour uh, teleseminars I did that really show you how you can apply some of these strategies in the book immediately right now to create wealth, a lot of articles and interviews and stuff. So that's all there at riskyisthenewsafe.com. And then randygage.com is my success blog, and I'm usually on there four or five times a week. And then you can find me all over social media. I'm at Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you know, all the usual suspects. Thanks, Randy, so much for joining us. Um, awesome, awesome book, and uh, look forward to bumping into you out there on the road. Thanks for having me on.